my instructor in China complained about it constantly, that it was hard for him to find Chinese students because they all wanted to do Taekwondo instead. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. And, but again, if we think about, oh yeah, I want to go to China to study authentic Chinese martial arts. That means doing Wushu. That means doing Tai Chi. That means doing Shaolin. That does not mean doing Taekwondo. Even though, like I said, by the numbers, Taekwondo is the more common martial arts experience in China. And yeah. certainly, I thought about this, what if I just went and did Muay Thai specifically in a bunch of different countries and see how it played out in different places? I'm like, well, that's no fun. And I want to do the thing that's from there. So I, even in my own being aware of all these issues of nationalization of martial arts, I'm still playing into that. I want to come to Cambodia to do the thing that is distinctly Cambodian. I wanted to go to Vietnam to bow, to do the Vietnamese national martial art. You are about to enter a nexus of science, violence, and nonsense. Where fake news, pseudoscience, and weaponized stupidity meet full contact fact-checking and peer-reviewed ass-kicking. And as always, no bullshit allowed. Recorded live at the Shido headquarters in Austin, Texas. This is the Art of Fighting BS podcast. Brain chips in the truth. Chocolate lines up planetarily with the sun. Necessarily rewarding. You are fake news. Come on, man. Science is interesting. If you don't agree, you can fuck off. Let's do this. My name is Alec. I was an active poster on Bullshito many years ago, back when that was the thing people did. <laughs> I am in the process of spending a year traveling through Asia, training different, sort of increasingly off the beaten path martial arts in their home countries. I had done this before. I spent a year, what was supposed to be a year, training Wushu in China. That year started in September 2019. And so about halfway through that process, there was a little bit of a kerfuffle in the world that you may have, that you may recall that began It's not ringing a bell. I don't, maybe it didn't affect they us over here. about some kind of flu or... Flu, yeah. And so that ended up turning into half a year in China and half a year in Thailand. And even though I only meant to be in Thailand for a week on a visa run and then got stranded there because China closed their borders in March 2020 and I got locked out of the country. So my week turned into about five, six months in Thailand. Still like the best five, six months of my life. And so yeah. after that, I came back to the U.S. Uh, I went to grad school. I got my master's degree. And the whole time I was in grad school, I was like, God, I miss Asia. And God, I miss the whole like training camp lifestyle. So I'm doing a sort of round two of what could be, what we could think of as martial arts tourism, or if you want to be a little bit fancier, Lauren Griffith calls a apprenticeship pilgrimage. And I'm, instead of focusing on one or two countries, I'm spending one to two months in one country and then going on to another. So I started out in Vietnam, where I was where I was training Viet Vo Dao, which is a national Vietnamese martial art, similar to Taekwondo, I'd say. And I was training that with 
a club at Dalat University uh, in the city of Dalat. And right now I am in Siem Reap in Cambodia, training Khun Khmer, which is essentially Cambodian Muay Thai. Okay. Yeah. Now there's a couple of Cambodian martial arts, right? Besides that, or is that sort of a, across that region, maybe not as nationalized as some of those? Yeah. So again, I've only been training Cambodian martial arts for a week at this point. So I'll be able to give much better answers in two months. My understanding, uh, the thing that most people are more familiar with is Bokator, which is, as I said, it, Khun Khmer is unto Bokator as Muay Thai is to Muay Boran. Bokator is the sort of older, more traditional form. Khun Khmer is the more modern, competitive form. I've also heard the term Pradalseri thrown around, which... As I understand it, is still largely in that family. And okay. as is so often the case with martial arts, is the lines that we draw between them are not as distinct as we would like there to be. And often, really, just the thing that separates the lines of a martial art is a national identity, right? The thing that separates yeah. Shotokan karate from Tang Sudo is Shotokan is Japanese, Tang Sudo is Korean. And other than that, they are functionally identical. And yeah. so there are some little stylistic differences between Kun Khmer and Muay Thai, but they are essentially the Khmer and the Thai version of the same Southeast, tri Southeast Asian tradition of kickboxing, if that makes sense. Okay. Cool. Yeah, that, that's awesome as hell. Yeah, you know, because we, we've talked about this, but I know you have a theory of the intersection of nationalism and martial arts. And feel free to explain that. Yeah, this is, so for the record, the thing that I went to grad school for was popular culture and ethnic studies. And it turns out both of those are actually really good lenses for looking at martial arts from. And if we look at how we define martial arts in the common parlance, we define them overwhelmingly according to national identity. So there's the question, why are there so many Korean martial arts and no Canadian martial arts, right? <laughs> it's not like Canadians are super peaceable and Koreans are super warlike. And indeed, if you're a white Canadian studying Taekwondo in Canada with a white Canadian instructor, right? No, no Koreans and no Korea involved you are still said to be doing Korean martial arts. And this is because Taekwondo is a nationally branded product that has very successfully spread over the world. Martial arts are not the only thing we do this with, obviously. Like food is the other big example, right? Yeah. Regardless of who's making it and where you're eating it and all that, certain dishes are considered Italian food or Greek food or Mexican food, what have you. With martial arts, it's curious because they are often the direct results of nationalistic products, really ranging from the 1880s to the 1960s, which we then slap a bunch of imaginary history onto. <laughs> as is so often the case with national products, right? The whole idea of turning peasants into Frenchmen, that we create these invented traditions. And again, the Korean martial arts are, we pick on them a lot for being sportive and commercialized and whatnot. And I think we don't quite pick on them enough for 
there. Let me walk this back because I'm going to get so many hate from everyone who's Korean. I don't think we examine them enough for the lens through which they are created through the particular moment of post-war Korean nationalism. And that you know, Taekwondo is Tang Sudo put through a remix album. And Tang Sudo is Shotokan Karate with the serial numbers filed off. And Hakido Taekwondo remixed with Aikido with the serial numbers filed off, right? So, like, the Korean martial arts are rooted in Japanese martial arts in this just flagrant way. And if you go to a Tung Sudo school, you will wear a Japanese karate gi. You will do the same sets of kata you do in a Shotokan school with the names translated into Korean, right? So instead of Takyoku Shodam, you'll learn Jin Hingangyu, right? They're obviously yeah. the same thing. However, this will not stop Tung Sudo instructors from telling you that Tung Sudo was invented 900 years ago. And it was created so that Korean Harong could use flying kicks to yes. knock Mongolian cavaliers off their horses. And I'm like, my brother in Christ, do you have any idea how big a horse is? Yeah. Um, martial arts are full of this. Yeah. There's a folklorist out of, I think, Texas A&M named Thomas A. Green, who studies this stuff. He refers to it as invented tradition. Invented tradition is a super common thing in any sort of nationalism, right? It's like, oh, we've always been here. This has always been our blood and our soil. And there has always been an Italian people and a, or a French people and whatnot. No, these are myths created by nation states in order to legitimize their sort of authority. And in the case of certain countries, the idea of a national martial art was a way of expressing that sort of newly created national identity, which often was tied to public education systems and specifically physical education. So when we look yeah. at like the history of karate, really looking at the history of people like Anko Utosu and Genshin Funakoshi, who are essentially creating phys ed programs for a new nation, which again is bound up in this idea that you make the individual body strong and thus you make the nation strong and so on and so forth. So when we look at the actual history of martial arts, it's a lot less glamorous and romantic, right? It's a lot less ancient warriors who were, they weren't allowed to have weapons, so they had to learn how to kill samurai with their bare hands or yeah. kick Mongols off of horses and or Shaolin monks who were on the run from Manchu bannermen. Mostly what it is like school teachers who were involved in nation building projects, developing physical education programs for burgeoning nation states. Yeah. That's where our martial arts come from. We have World War II to thank for a lot of this. So Yeah, it's true. Although a lot of this was, I think Japan set the model for this with Judo and Kendo in the Meiji period. Is they yeah. really, I think, put the idea in people's heads that a martial art can be an expression of national identity. 
And then we see particularly other burgeoning East Asian nation states, right? When they catch on with the idea of we should be a nation state instead of a kingdom or an empire or something following this way. So we have organizations like the Jingwu Institute, China in the 19-teens and 1920s creating what we now recognize as Chinese martial arts. And then certainly Korea as they're escaping post, as they're escaping from Japanese colonialism after World War II or okay, it is officially not cool to be doing karate because we are still very understandably upset about <laughs> Japan's <laughs> role in our history. And we don't want to be engaging in their cultural products. I've got this fourth degree black belt. So maybe yeah. <laughs> if I just change the names around and I call it Kung Soo Do, or I call it Taekwondo, or I call it Kuk Sol Wan, or I call it Choi Kwang Do, it, right? Like, then I can still keep my bona fides and I can still keep doing what I'm doing in a way that's more nationally palatable. Yeah, so a justifiable cultural appropriation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, cultural appropriation is, of course, one of the most top... It's one of those words where it's become so emotionally loaded that I don't think it usefully describes much anymore. And it has this kind of connotation of like theft or bastardization, particularly of dominant group from a taking from a non-dominant group. And of course, that power hierarchy is very much reversed in a case like the history of Korean martial arts. Yeah. The teaching of karate in Korean universities in the 1920s was a case of cultural imperialism. Japanese culture was being aggressively pushed upon the Koreans and then escaping that colonial situation. What do we do with that? Especially if you're not, and again, not looking at this as the country as a whole, but looking at the subculture of people who were doing martial arts. Okay, how do we take our hobby? How do we take our skills? And how do we make them into something that's more palatable that can be an expression of our national identity instead of their national identity because we still have a lot of beef with their national identity yeah i'm just throwing that out there as a sort of poking the bear troll thing yeah yeah it's it i guess in, in the grand scheme of things it depends on where the power is in the culture now But we both know that martial arts is a form of, is useful for cultural ambassadorship. So to reach out and spread that to other countries, because kicking somebody's ass is pretty cool, at least to most people. And it's weird that I keep talking about Taekwondo because I don't practice Taekwondo, but like Taekwondo is such a good example of that cultural ambassadorship. Like it is everywhere in the world now and to podcast recommendation in your podcast if you look up dr paul bowman's martial arts studies podcast he has a solo episode on taekwondo where he really talks about this in much more eloquent language than i can and but this idea that taekwondo is like this gift to the world (laughs) right that it's that school children in the United States, in Senegal, in Afghanistan, like every corner of the earth, we can find a Taekwondo school. And so this, I think, creates a level of tension between Taekwondo in terms of, is this something that is nationally identified? Is this a 
sort of Korean martial art that is steeped in Koreanness? Is this a global martial art that is equally owned by all peoples of the world? And judo is in a similar position, right? It, where it spreads throughout the world. It's an Olympic sport, which is a which is where the world comes together to practice sport. But it still has this Japanese. I'm going to quote more academics. What Koichi Uebuchi, Japanese sociologist, refers to as a national odor about it. Right, a sense of Japanese-ness, as yeah. opposed to something like boxing or wrestling, which are what he would refer to as nationless products, mukokuseki products. That they are, there is no sense that one country owns freestyle wrestling the way that Japan owns judo, and this can create some real tensions. Like in the 1960s. Russians were developing unique styles of judo, which were working really well. Where they were doing stuff that, like, the Japanese kind of hadn't thought of, like over the back grips and grabbing the pant legs and whatnot. And they were winning pretty successfully with their distinctively Russian-flavored judo. The result of which was to make rules against these types of grips, right? This is where the standardized grips in judo come from. Like, oh, if you grab the guy's back belt, you can only do it for three seconds. You gotta throw it. And so it's rules not to bar, but to disincentivize the Russian style of judo. And likewise, if you're on the Korean Taekwondo Olympic team, I think there's even more riding on that in terms of your success as a matter of national pride than if you're on like the Korean Olympic swimming team. So this is, I think, the tension of martial arts as nationally branded products that are also international subcultures. Yeah, I, I can see that. I just, I mean, I've obviously am a little familiar with some of the histories of a lot of this stuff and i know teddy roosevelt himself has had has been to was went to judo displays or jujitsu i think they were calling it back then i don't think it was formal judo and i know going into world war ii there was a lot of fear on the part of a lot of american troops because i've seen the training videos and they're pretty much racist against the uh, i'm not gonna you know, use the slur here but it's a japanese soldier because they had all these martial arts skills and a lot of soldiers were apprehensive so they were like they came up with these this is how you defeat this and they used like some major star i think oh cagney or somebody they used a huge hollywood star to, to star in those videos uh, and i think they even made a movie or two where he's beating up the very racist detropy looking japanese guy as the hero of the movie if i'm not mistaken i think the movie you're talking about is blood on the sun that's it yeah, which was a sort of early war movie, which ended with like a judo fight between the American hero and the Japanese villain. And it shows up in a lot of like compilations of fight scenes and whatnot. And it's like actually a pretty dope fight scene. Yeah. Like it looks, it certainly looks better than like anything where Liam Neeson has been in, where we have to cut four times to conceal the fact that he can't bend his knees. And they, but yeah, and the, judo slash jujitsu at the time, like I said, the style of martial art practiced by the Kodokan Institute was still largely being called jujitsu rather than judo. That term, I think, came about post-World War II because it sounded a little bit more non-threatening. 
but yeah, you'll see this, like the suffragette movement had their sort of interest in jujitsu as a form of like women's self-defense. You'd see like magazines in the 20s and 30s or like newsreels talking about, ah, behold, the fighting tricks of the Orient. Um, yep. <laughs> and, and they'd be demonstrating what were largely, what we think of as judo techniques and say, nages and maybe the occasional standing arm lock and whatnot. And it was the first of many waves of sort of Western fascination with Asia as a place where cool ways to fight people. <laughs> you know, yeah. come from. And then after World War II, we had the introduction of karate into the United States, which kind of launched another wave. And in 1970s, we had Bruce Lee and the Kung Fu wave, and that was the really big one. And then the 1980s, we had that whole cringy ninja phase, which we're still living down. And it happens o- over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, I think the ninja was like the last sort of gasp of it. And then we rolled into basically action films. And then there's this plucky little group of Brazilians that started up this fight group. And it became more of a cosmopolitan thing. Yes. And this is going back to kind of the theme of nationalism in martial arts. I think this is one of the many reasons why karate instructors hated and to this day i think still hate the gracies is because mma disrupted the nationalistic paradigms of martial arts and it did it on two levels first there is this idea that mma is a non-nationally branded system of fighting right it is like boxing and freestyle wrestling and unlike karate and kung fu and savat it doesn't come from a particular country so we can't plug it easily into our sort of blood sport slash street fighter mentality of ah will the japanese martial arts defeat the chinese martial arts and ergo resolve ongoing national tensions between japan and china symbolically and so mma is a practice and obviously when we first did when we had our early MMAs, we really branded it as live action blood sport, right? Yeah. Ah, this karate instructor from South Carolina who's 45 years old and 50 pounds overweight defeat this shoot fighting champion who's 200 pounds of lean muscle tissue. No, he will not. Yeah. But we had that style versus style mentality, and those styles were defined by largely by nationality. So the idea of just doing MMA and not doing a traditional martial art, which we can read that as nationally defined martial art, I think fucks with our paradigm. The other way that it messes with the nationalistic paradigm is because in those early days, when it was this style versus style martial art, it was styles from countries we didn't associate martial arts with that were the most dominant. We wanted to see the karate guys and the kung fu guys and the ninjas like winning because those were the guys who win in the movies. Those are the guys who have the countries with the nationally branded martial arts traditions attached to them. Our conception of the master martial artist was the Kung Fu master. It was someone who, regardless of whether or not they themselves were Chinese, someone who like 
trained on a mountain in China, you know, and is plugged into this ancient tradition and there go the best tradition. So when people come in doing Brazilian jujitsu and God forbid, Dutch kickboxing, my yeah. God, the, the Dutch are winning? No, Dutch, they're, they're all things windmills and wooden shoe. They're not cool. They're not tough. And so these traditions really, I think, collectively messed with our heads because they're not coming from the countries that we want them to be coming from. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I had never really considered that at the time when we were doing a lot of the, because the, the original push from Bullshito was, a lot of these styles just don't work. They're cool, and they maybe have some history, some sketchy history behind them, And but there's a lot of national pride. But we didn't look at it through, especially all the pushback that we got from the instructors, American instructors and stuff too, that we were attacking national identities because you can't separate the two. We were attacking personal identities. Like, I want to identify with this ancient tradition because I work at a, in an office. Exactly. And this is where we can certainly, I think, put this under the umbrella of Orientalism, but the term I'm really trying to push for is displaced nationalism. And we see this, if you look at like the old rivalries between like karate and kung fu instructors in the United States. And like, I remember growing up like in the early 2000s, I was doing karate and kung fu and like the almost compulsive need for karate instructors to shit talk kung fu and kung fu instructors especially to shit talk karate was yeah. wild when you considered that everyone involved in this conflict was a white american <laughs> but we have this tradition that really goes back to the movie fists of fury with bruce lee which is a banger of a movie <laughs> wherein a rivalry between kung fu fighters and karate fighters is symbolic of the rivalry and national sort of tension that exists between Japan and China. And so when Bruce Lee walks into that karate school in Fists of Fury and beats the shit out of all those karate students using his kung fu, he is symbolically avenging the sort of horrors of war that China suffered at the hands of the Japanese army in World War II. Yeah, right? and, and, so, uh, and so this mindset, this narrative of fighting styles that represent countries that can potentially avenge past slights or play into past national rivalries, et cetera, is so powerful that you don't have to be from that country. You don't have to be descended from those people. You don't have to speak that language because spoilers, most white American Kung Fu instructors, they're Chinese is real, real bad, right? Like you don't have to know shit all at all about the culture writ large to see yourself as an ambassador of that cultural tradition and thus play into and thus take national pride in this country that you're not from and probably have never been to. And if we're being honest, because again, martial arts are subcultures. They are not the totality of national cultures. 
really doesn't actually have that much to do with the national culture of a place. As you may have heard, most Chinese people don't know Kung Fu. Like even if we're looking at people who do martial arts in China, there's more of them doing Taekwondo than doing Chinese martial arts. That's great. My instructor in China complained about it constantly, that it was hard for him to find Chinese students because they all wanted to do Taekwondo instead. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. And, but again, if we think about, oh, yeah, I want to go to China to study authentic Chinese martial arts. That means doing Wushu. That means doing Tai Chi. That means doing Shaolin. That does not mean doing Taekwondo. Even though, like I said, by the numbers, Taekwondo is the more common martial arts experience in China. And yeah. certainly, I thought about this, what if I just went and did Muay Thai specifically in a bunch of different countries and see how it played out in different places? I'm like, well, that's no fun. And I want to do the thing that's from there. So I, even in my own being aware of all these issues of nationalization of martial arts, I'm still playing into that. I want to come to Cambodia to do the thing that is distinctly Cambodian. I wanted to go to Vietnam to Gao to do the Vietnamese national martial art. Yeah, you go to, you're going to, I don't know, France. You don't want to eat, I don't know, sushi. You're going to eat French yeah. food. Yeah, exactly, so. exactly. Yeah. Uh, That's, it's interesting that I, Cuisine and martial arts have that analog going for them. That it's, There's some identity there. Thankfully, we're not overrun with weird martial arts from every single place in the world. Although us being nerds about this stuff would be like, yeah, that's cool. Let's see what, what I don't know, uh, Suriname has to say about styles and stuff. But only so many ways you can effectively use your body to hurt another body at the end of the day. Yep, exactly. And that's where when we look at the differences between these martial arts styles, the differences often aren't in like the techniques in the, again, to use a fancy academic word, it's not in the anthropotechnics, the means of using the body. Sometimes there's little differences in there, but the things that tend to differentiate them are the traditions they're associated with, which usually means it's a national tradition, the organizations that pull over them. I think that's a really important one we often forget about. Yeah. And in some cases, like the training practice. And I think that's really common with when we divide up like the, again, the traditional martial arts, which again, usually just means things derived from Shotokan karate versus the ring arts. The punches and kicks in karate and Taekwondo aren't that different from the punches and kicks in Muay Thai and Kung Khmer. The difference is how you train them, right? Are you training by doing katas and punching and kicking in the air and maybe kicking a paddle? Or are you training them with bag work, pad work, and calisthenics? And turns out, boy, one of these training methodologies will get the same anthropotechnics working a whole lot better than the other. Uh, yeah. That was our one of our big talking points back in the day is like the difference between a live training form, sparring, et cetera, and more traditional is that one of them produces results that look like basically really good kickboxing, and the other produces results that look like really shitty kickboxing at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because with striking martial arts, like I said, there's only so many ways to punch and kick. And there are little stylistic flavors, which I find interesting. So like I trained Sanda in China for six months. 
And Sanda guys throw their spin back kicks differently than American kickboxers do. They throw it with their hip open, more a side kick and not with the hip down, like a mule kick, which is how you're usually taught in yeah. like full contact karate, taekwondo, every other martial art they use spin back kicks. And that, so I thought that was interesting. And I found actually do the Sanda style hip open spin back kick a little bit better. And then there's things that are stylistic, not along lines of different martial arts. Like I've, no one can actually agree how to throw a left hook. This is my great takeaway from training with many different instructors. Like I have this distinct memory of working with a boxing trainer. And I was asking him, so when you throw hooks, what's your take on thumb up versus palm down versus thumb down? I was like, oh, no, you should never throw a, a hook thumb down. That's wrong. I'm like, oh, someone should tell Fedora Emelianenko he's been yeah. punching wrong his whole career. <laughs> and this is I think, a struggle of striking arts, regardless of whether they're that, whether they're ring arts or not, is there is still so much prescriptive formalism of judging the value of the technique based on how it is done and what it looks like rather than what it accomplishes. Because yeah. we're training stuff through pad work, we're training stuff through bag work. So much of our feedback mechanism on is this a good punch or a bad punch is visual. Whereas with the grappling arts, no one's ever, I've never heard anyone say in a jujitsu school, now when you do a rear naked choke, you need to make sure your elbows are exactly this far apart and your hands yeah. exactly this far around his head. Because of the sort of interplay of bodies, we understand that rear naked choke is going to look different depending on how thick the guy's neck is, how long your arms are, et cetera, et cetera. So what matters is does the guy tap? And yeah, so exactly. the grappling arts, I think, are much better able to liberate themselves from that type of prescriptivism. And I think that also plays into why they are so much more prone to innovation than the striking arts. Part of it, I think, is just there's way more ways to like choke, sweep, and armbar someone and there are to like punch and kick someone. You look at pretty like the culture of gi jujitsu and stuff like the buggy choke, which like totally just changes the game. Like we can choke people out from bottom side control now. That's wild. That was like a heresy 10 years ago. And we haven't seen any corresponding paradigm shifts in striking arts. Uh, occasionally we get stuff like the Sanchai kick, like Sanchai invented a new way to kick people in the head, and that's pretty cool. And But it doesn't have that same rapid pace of evolution. And again, that's also, I think, partially just the inherent nature of the training, that like in jiu-jitsu, you can just roll for an hour and you can be fine. And if you try and do an hour of full contact striking every day, you're going to be real beat up real fast yeah you're gonna you're gonna lose a couple standard deviations of iq at some point yeah, exactly yeah that probably explains a lot of the reason why in the early days of the style versus style ufc etc what the grappling was so dominant because these people i'm sure they're a lot of the strikers were just training as best they could full contact as much as they could they just didn't have the ability to 
pressure test every single one of their ideas against people like 100%. You can roll balls to the wall, especially if you're in your 20s all day doing grappling and stuff. And you can just come up with some crazy stuff. You can just, oh, absolutely, that doesn't work. This works, whatever. So it's different. Absolutely. There's also, I think, an inherent, like, how should I put this? When you've got a weapon that the other guy doesn't have, and you know how to deal with his weapon, and he doesn't know how to deal with yours, that really tilts the fight in one favor. So it was the fact that the, like, the Gracies and Ken Shamrock, they had a, at least a vague understanding of how to block punches and kicks. Yeah. They could shoot from their takedown and they could take all that away. I think where this plays out more with a little bit more nuance is when you look at the old Muay Thai versus kickboxing matches, like Duke Rufus versus Kick Sangret. And it was the fact that the Muay Thai guys knew how to deal with all the punches and high kicks of the kickboxers. They had those two. The American kickboxers didn't know how to deal with leg kicks. And so that leg kick became this decisive factor of, I can do this thing that you can't. So as long as I keep doing that thing, the fight is now in a space where I'm comfortable and you're not comfortable. Yep. And this is why I'm such a big advocate of cross-training and developing a robust and diverse skill set to try and be able to find the thing that you can do that your opponent can't do. Yeah. Yeah, no. So speaking of training, let's say somebody's interested in doing this and I just want to say fuck it and go to, to fuck it. No. <laughs> so that's yeah. Thailand joke. If oh, you uh, fuck it, what's, um, yeah. what is how should they get into this and what's your advice for this? What should they avoid too? Yes. Okay. This is what this podcast probably should have actually been about until I went down the <laughs> rabbit hole of ethno nationalism and martial arts. We're nerds, um, so it's cool. Yeah, absolutely. So there are two ways to do what I'm doing. The first and easiest way is to do like a, a fight camp. A, and this is a packaged deal where you are staying at a gym that has an on-site dormitory and your meals are likely being provided as well. So you eat, sleep, train all in the same place. It's very convenient. It tends to build a strong sense of community because the people you're training with, you're also eating with and sharing sleeping arrangements with and all this. There, to find these fight camps, the website I use is called bookmartialarts.com. You can maybe put a link to it in the podcast description. These fight camps are overwhelmingly either in Thailand or in China. Those are really the only two countries that do them. And because China is currently closed to tourists, that really means that they're in Thailand right now. Like I said, the upsides of these is the convenience, the sort of once you get there, you are taken care of. And they do tend to foster very strong senses of community. The downsides of these is they tend to be more expensive. And it means that you're most likely going to be training with other foreigners. So if you're interested in interfacing more heavily with local populations, local fighters, you're not going to get that at one of these camps. So the other way to do it is what I call the DIY fight camp or the a la carte fight camp. And this is where you find a gym or a club in another country that you want to train at. You find a place to stay close to that gym. And you just show up 
this requires a lot more logistics. This requires a lot more legwork. You're much more likely to run into language barriers. You're going to have to figure out how to feed yourself yeah. and all this. The upside of this is that it tends to be cheaper. And again, you are more likely to be interfacing with local populations, local fighters. Certainly there's no such thing as a Viet Vo Dao fight camp because no one in the West has heard of Viet Vo Dao. If yeah. you know what I'm talking about when I say that, congratulations, you are deep in on the martial arts nerd community. So what I did is I made contact with a club at, like I said, at Dalat University. Um, Viet Vo Dao, it's kind of like judo in the United States. It's not really run through commercial schools. It's usually run through like community centers or college uh, university clubs. And I said, using Google Translate, I like sent them some messages like, hey, I'm a foreigner. Can I come train with you? And no one responded, but I got a bunch of likes on the post because it's on a Facebook group. So I can take that as a yes. And I just showed up and I was like, hey, I'm the American. Can I train with you? And they were like, and at first they were like confused because again, not a popular sort of tourist martial art, but then they were delighted that someone was yeah. interested in doing their, their national martial art. And I found a youth hostel that was close by and I just stayed there and walked 15 minutes to the club every day. And then I also, cause they only met three times a week. I also trained at a Muay Thai gym on the other three days of the week so I could keep moving. The place that I'm at now, it, it, was, it started as a package deal that I de-packaged as I came here. It is a place that I found through a martial arts called Mr. Lee Boxing and Gym in, in Siem Reap. And so, yeah, we have housing, we have food, et cetera. And then when I got there, so the housing is this youth hostel that's like about 10 minutes away. And the food is this restaurant that's by the hostel where we'll set you up with a meal plan. And I was like... Uh, okay, how much of it, is it would it be if I just bought my, did food on my own and if I did housing on my own? And I decided that was going to be better off for me. I checked into a different place and I'm figuring out how to navigate the local food scene and I'm just paying my gym fees at the, at the gym instead. So that version, the DIY fight camp, like I said, it's going to be more legwork. It's going to be harder. It is also going to open up your ability to train in countries that martial arts tourism isn't like a thing in. So if you want to go train in Japan, if you want to go train in Korea, I'm hoping to go to Laos later to train Muay Lao. That's how you have to do it. And, but if you're like trying to, if you're looking to like train and travel for the first time, I'd say booking a fight camp in Thailand's not a bad way to go. Okay. And the lifestyle of living at a fight camp is also, it's nice. It's, there's something just very soothing about it. You never have to go anywhere or do anything besides train. And that is like, your 100% full-time job. And when you're not training, it is your job to rest. Like I never feel so justified lying in bed playing video games as I do between my morning and afternoon sessions. Cause like literally I just need to be lying still and recovering my body to get ready for the next one. Yeah, that's nice. I think that's the dream of every dude that's ever wanted to even flirted with the idea of becoming some kind of badass because that's a common, let's be honest, that's a common male fantasy is like travel to some oh. exotic location, learn secret techniques and be able to fuck people up. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that was, I like so many um, people who do martial arts and maintain that fantasy. And in 2019, it literally started with me trying to decide whether or not to re-sign the lease on my apartment in Columbus. And that conversation escalated into, oh, should I stay in Columbus? Should I move back to Michigan? Or should I buy a camper van and travel around the country? Or should I move to China and do martial arts for a year? And because I realized, yeah, that whole thing of training on a mountain in China, like you can just do that. That doesn't have to be a fantasy. That is a real thing that you could do before January 2020 when China locked their borders down. And maybe someday you'll be able to do it again. I think a lot of people are going to be excited to hear that. I, it's, yeah. Because honestly, the average person is just, I just want to, they'll go down the street. and if, But if the school is like too far of a commute, they won't do it. And, uh, yeah. Damn. And the, there is the biggest barriers to this type of freaking long-term martial arts tourism like I'm doing is just time and money, right? Because you're probably not working and it, you're taking a chunky out of your life. But particularly, I'd say anyone who's like working remotely which is much more common now than it was two years ago, really consider, can I do my job from a beach in Thailand and while training at a fight camp? And that can be a real big quality of life improvement. Yeah. And should China ever open up again? That's also an option. I feel like I should give a sort of I don't know, warning or advice column that training in China and training in Thailand are very different experiences in a way that most people will probably have a better time in Thailand. Yeah. China is much less tourist friendly, so people are much less likely to speak English. There's less of a hospitality industry, etc. The Chinese training camps tend to be out in the countryside rather than in, in the city, so you're more isolated. China, for lack of a better word, is just kind of a harsher country, like the beds are less soft. The water pressure in the showers tends to not be as good. So your, your creature comforts tend to be less. The air pollution is pretty bad in much of the country, and that bothers some people. And the schools themselves tend to be a little bit more paternalistic. The I trained at two places in China. The first one I left because it was an absolute nightmare. Like Lord of the Flies like cult shit. They had this whole culture faux military disciplinarianism that initially just was like corny and annoying until I watched the first public beating of a student who had been late to class too many times as I'm getting out of here. It's that place shouted out Ushan in Shandong province. Don't go there. It is a nightmare. It will give you PTSD. Shit. <laughs> okay. The second place that I went to was called Yu Kung Fu, also in Shandong province, outside the city of Tongzhou. Much, much nicer. Much more chill atmosphere. No public beatings. And I think probably also on par higher quality training. So I had a really good time at that second camp. But there was still like, there was a curfew. Like you had to be back by eight o'clock on the weekends, which is not that big of a deal because there's China has no rural China has no nightlife. There's not much to do anyways. And so in Thailand, conversely, you tend to be, there's a lot less of that. The gyms tend to be a lot more easygoing and there's sort of 
physical attitudes, even though the training is super, super intense. And that can be a plus and a minus. Like all the nightlife, pretty good if you're in a place like Phuket or Pattaya, can kind of lead people away from the main goal. And if you're out at the bar drinking until 1 a.m. every night, you're probably not going to have a very good morning session. I don't drink. I get massive social anxiety in bars. That's not an issue for me personally, but that is something that has been a sort of traditional trouble with people going to fight camps as they get too caught up in kind of the nightlife and the more conventional aspects of tourism. Yeah. So you probably would recommend one that's not necessarily right in the middle of a touristy place. It's just fight focused. Yeah, yeah. Or and there are some that are more out in, like I said, out in rural areas. So when I was in Thailand, I trained at two places. The first was Team Quest Chiang Mai, uh, which was right kind of in central Chiang Mai, which is a bigger city in the north. And so again, there were a lot of people going out at night and whatnot. The second one was a more DIY fight camp. And that was in the village of Pai, which is a hippie backpacker destination up in the north of the country, which is where I found myself when Thailand went into lockdown. So <laughs> leaving wasn't an option. And it was curious being in a tourist town after all the tourists had dried up. And so I ended up like renting a room in an abandoned youth house and training with a Muay Thai instructor who the official reason why her gym had stayed open during the pandemic was because it was too small to be a public health risk. I think, however, if I'm being honest, the fact that every Friday she went over to the police station with an expensive bottle of whiskey to have dinner <laughs> with her friend on the police force also had something to do with the ability to keep her gym open. That was great. She was amazing. Best she sounds like she sounds like a badass. Yeah, That's yeah. Amazing. Her name was Apple. She is this flamboyant butch lesbian. Shout out, Apple. You're the best. I miss you. She unfortunately no longer teaches in Thailand. She moved to Switzerland. That's a but uh, yeah, but it was great. And just once I realized that I was stuck in Thailand and I wasn't be able to go back to China, I was like, all right, so I'm doing kung fu all day every day. I'll do Muay Thai all day every day. I would totally go train Muay Thai in Switzerland on, in the Alps or something. That yeah. would be amazing. Yeah. Just hope you got a good job because Switzerland is much more expensive than Thailand. Yeah. Um, Damn. Yeah. But yeah. And I had considered maybe I should make the Netherlands a stop on this tour. Because again, let me talk about like Dutch kickboxing is a thing. It is a distinctive style that's very well reputed. It just doesn't fit well into our sort of vaguely oriental <laughs> national framework of how we define martial arts. Yeah, no, see, I have one of these days I would love to do that once my once I get my adult responsibilities under control, to be honest. But I want to go to Mongolia. I want to do Mongolian wrestling in Mongolia. That would be the coolest thing. Now, I get yeah. my ass handed to me. So... I know a guy who did that. He used to post on Bullshito. I, I know who you're talking about. Oh, yeah. this is this guy's this is Richard. He's local oh. here in Austin. So oh, cool. He's so a we Sambo guy. Know a guy who did that. But yeah. yeah, when I lived in Seattle, I trained Sambo with a guy named Aaron Fields, who did a year of study abroad in Mongolia, where hmm. he trained with their national wrestling team doing judo, Sambo, and oh, what's it called? Bulk, I think. Anyways, the. Uh, the, the Mongolian folk wrestling. And yeah. Yeah, also cool. an option. 
And I'll also go ahead and add in that obviously you can train martial arts full-time in your hometown, right? Nothing stops a person from doing that. And so this is not the only path to getting good at fighting. The important thing is dedication and consistency, not where you're doing it. However, if you're interested in international travel and seeing other parts of the world, I think this is a really good way to do it because training martial arts plugs you into a local subculture and immediate, and you're there with a purpose and with a community that goes above and beyond. I'm going to go see the famous historical temples and I'm going to eat a bunch of local food and I'm going to do a bunch of shopping. It allows you to engage in a form of tourism and travel that goes above and beyond the kind of extended weekend holiday that is yeah. the default mode of tourism. Yeah, it gives you a reason to be there that's not just to look at things, you're doing things. Yeah. You're not ziplining or some dumb shit. You're yeah. engaging with the people. Exactly. Yeah. And you're getting, and you're becoming part of a community. And that's something that can be difficult to find when you're on the road. Travel can be very isolating. And I find this is a good way to get past that isolation. That's and awesome. That's overwhelmingly, awesome. I find martial arts clubs are extremely welcoming to outsiders. I think we have this idea in our head of, oh, the martial arts clubs in Asia must be like really xenophobic or they don't want to teach foreigners or they don't want to teach Westerners. And I'm sure those clubs do exist somewhere, but my experience has overwhelmingly been that people are excited to have you. Not the least of which because gyms are businesses and they are always excited to have more customers because they keep the business running. But even things like the Viet Dao Club, which was non-commercial, I was not paying any dues. They were excited that like a foreigner wanted to come train at their university martial arts club. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that sounds like the best selling point of all is because a lot of people may be apprehensive because not everyone in this hobby has the best social skills on either end of the, uh, the sort of personal social anxiety spectrum, like none at all. and just wants to kick the shit out of people or just absolutely, I, it's hard to start a conversation. So finding a, an in natural with a bunch of people you would never speak to otherwise is that's cool. That's huge. Yeah, exactly. And it gives you that sense of purpose, right? This community exists with the intention of doing something and that something is learning how to kick really. That's cool. Speaking of kicking really hard, we have started to do a thing and I don't know if you can hear that gong, which is our new, way of kicking this off we're being at, we have been asking our guests if you could snap your fingers and be across a cage instantly to fight any living human being right now for whatever reason you would want to fight them who would it be and why oh my god fuck i need to think about this because there's a lot of answers i'm going to say i'm gonna get real spicy on this one Okay. Brett Kavanaugh with the intention of killing him in the ring. <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, yes. That may be the I, most I, hardcore I response. To, I don't mean to sound cold-hearted and murderous, but and maybe there's like other world leaders who deserve that more. He's the one who's close to my heart and my country because when someone is appointed to a position that they serve for life, 
and they use that position to inflict great harm on the people whose authority they are under. Okay, you've just given the most, the best case sort of moral cause for politically motivated assassination. Wow. It's, I always call it like the, you got 30 seconds in an airport waiting room with Adolf Hitler. What are you going to do? Yeah. Are you going to take that shot? You um, got three rounds on this case. Yeah, uh, yeah. I would fight Brett Kavanaugh in order to try and remove him from office. Yeah, you're right. That is the spiciest response we've gotten so far. So you hold the record. <laughs> I don't know if there's a grading scale for this, but I don't yeah. know if I just put myself on a watch list. No, because it's hypothetical. Unless it's he, hypothetical. Unless he sees um, this and says, okay, yeah, unified so, MMA yeah, rules. To man. the FBI, I do not have any current active plans to assassinate Brett Kavanaugh. I am, however, saying that from a philosophical, moral, ethical point of view, there is a stronger case to be made for his assassination than almost any other person in the United States. Yeah. So if Brett Kavanaugh was standing over a set of train tracks with people, you would push him onto said tracks. Potentially. Um, right. Yeah, irrespective um, of whether or not he would stop the train. And so. if Supreme Court justices would like to be less, how should I put this, morally justified in their own assassination, Perhaps they should consider giving themselves term limits or making their positions elected or somehow adding some form of popular accountability instead of being a council of grand wizards who serve for life. <laughs> yeah, I think that the need for that has become clearer recently, but oh, man, this is great. Usually these go one of two ways. It's either... Someone, yeah, I would like to cause grievous bodily harm to, or someone I absolutely respect and would enjoy getting my ass kicked by. This, There are no wrong answers here. There's just the imagination. There are no wrong answers. There are just answers that get me put on an FBI watch list. Yeah. If he ever ends up in a cage with you, then I'm sure they'll have a reason to be worried, but somehow i don't see that happen. alex this has been fantastic we're gonna wrap this up because we honestly for no better reason than we're trying to keep these around an hour because people's attention spans but yeah just we need to stay in touch offline and keep us posted this will go up yeah. out on the pods and stuff not too long from now but for sure if you have anything you want to add to the, the show notes or anything you want to plug or links to that let us know and we'll get that in there and we'll put that out for the world to see yeah, absolutely. If anyone wants to follow me online, my TikTok is Cobalt Inferno, and my Instagram is Alex K, spelled in just the most obtuse way imaginable. E L Y X E K H E I. Yeah, um, so good luck finding that by search engine otherwise. But you've heard it. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, put in the yeah. And I've been trying to TikTok my journeys and all that and whatnot. So yeah. And anyone who is interested in traveling and training abroad, certainly feel free to reach out to me as a guide and who's interested in the intersection of ethno-nationalism and martial arts for some reason. Also feel free to reach out to me if that's the subject I'm passionate about. It's strangely I don't think that, that I think that is a non-zero number. <laughs> <laughs>